Today on the podcast, a mantelpiece moment that reflects on the influences of one man. A novel that takes us to the moors of Dartmoor. And of course, the weekly reveal to what magical book I have pulled down from my to-be-read shelf. All of that and more this week on A Novel Review. Hello and welcome to the literature podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus, I am your host, and for today's episode, The Haunting Hound Upon the Moors. Yes, it is Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and... This past week, I learned some interesting facts. One of my favorite films is Lawrence of Arabia, which, I mean, if you haven't seen, go and watch it, but try and watch it on the biggest screen possible. Um, It's about a man called T.E. Lawrence who helped mobilize an Arab revolt in World War I. Now, the movie itself is based off a novel, his memoirs, in fact, which is called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Now, Lawrence survived all this, World War I, mobilizing the Arab revolt of World War I, survived all that and then went back home, which was England. He unfortunately had a uh, historic, I guess it's historic in a way, he had a horrific motorcycle accident that resulted in his death. The doctor who treated him was a man called Hugh Cairns who, as a result of this death, was set on a path of safety and published his findings in the British Medical Journal in 1941 calling and claiming for the importance of crash helmets, or as they are now known, helmets. From here, the army picked it up and made it part of their protective wear for motorbike riders, and then it was finally mandated public-wide in 1973. And it's just one of those moments that isn't really literary, but I found very interesting as it's about someone that I feel like I know quite well because I've watched the film a lot of times and it is about his own life, but I also just think it's fascinating how something that is so common so every day you know how many people ride a bike or you know i mean motorcycle helmets you have to wear a helmet these days it's just it's just ingrained in societal ways that it can actually be traced to sort of one moment and it was this man that did enough i mean you would think that mobilizing the Arab revolt of world war one was enough for one lifetime but i guess even in death we can have an influence so very philosophical moment for you I haven't actually read the book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I think it's around 1,200 pages. So it is one that sits on the shelf of to be read. Um, that is not the book I'm pulling down today, later in the episode. So don't get your hopes up if that's what you want. I don't know when I'll have a chance to read that. The movie itself is incredibly long. I think it's pretty much four hours. Um, there is an intermission right in the middle. So it is technically two films, I guess. But it is a fantastic film. Lawrence of Arabia, go and check it out. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts are available on my website and there should be closed captions somewhere around here. 
Uh, also like, subscribe, five star reviews, please and thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everyone's support for the podcast. So let's get on with the show. The hounds are calling in this gothic story. It had been eight years since Sherlock had been killed off when this novel came out. It was originally serialised, as all things were, but makes up one of the four longer and therefore novels of the Sherlock universe. It was serialised from August 1901 to April 1902 and is set in the years prior of 1889. Now, in the real world, our world, eight years prior, Sherlock had been killed off by Conan Doyle in the short story The Final Problem, which is meant to end exactly how it does, with this firm, swift hand of finality. Now, interestingly, maybe even sadly, Conan Doyle wanted to kill Sherlock off because, and I quote, I must save my mind for better things. He felt that Sherlock was distracting him from more important literary efforts and that he needed to actually get his career back on track, which in hindsight seems absurd because... I mean, if any writer had the success that Conan Doyle was having, they would be stoked. Which I do think is interesting because it's about what you personally think about your own work and clearly Conan Doyle thought that his wasn't it. So he killed off Sherlock. And then there was a vast silence stretching as the years passed descending upon London and 221B Baker Street. Even though this story technically takes place before his death in the Sherlock timeline, there is still a silence upon this novel that haunts like the hounds upon the moor. The story starts in familiar fashion, 221B Baker Street. The story also ends here, so despite majority of the story taking place outside of London, the story does have this nice familiar bookend that brings a comfort and fresh level to this story. So, The Hound of the Baskervilles, what is this story about? A quick overview to paint a picture for us. The novel begins with the mysterious death of Sir Charles Baskerville, a wealthy landowner. The circumstances surrounding his death are shrouded in superstition and legend, and it is believed that a supernatural hound from the Baskerville family curse is responsible for his demise. Dr. James Mortimer, a family friend, seeks the assistance of Sherlock Holmes and his loyal companion, Dr. John Watson, to investigate the case. Fearing that the nephew of Charles, a man who has been living in Canada called Sir Henry Baskerville, is in danger as a result of this deadly hound that now plagues the family. Now, around this point, the story takes an interesting turn. Watson is sent down to Dartmoor with Sir Henry to shadow him, ensuring no harm comes to him, and also writing to report back to Sherlock in London of all that happens. Sherlock says he cannot come down due to other pressing matters, and so what we actually get is a Sherlock Holmes story in which Sherlock is largely absent from the story, which is interesting given that this is the first story back after being revived, but maybe I'll touch on that later. The story itself is a classic whodunit, Someone has died, we don't know exactly how, why, or who is responsible. What we do know is that there is this supernatural thread of this haunting hound that plagues the Baskerville name, and it seems to have once again struck at the core of the family. Now what gives this story a kind of building pressure is not that there has been a potential murder, or that there might even be another one. 
It's a common thing, of course, of detective fiction that a second murder adds the pressure atop the shoulders of the detective and is therefore sort of presumed. But the pressure actually comes from the fact that, according to this supernatural curse of the haunting hound upon the moors, we know exactly who will be targeted. This isn't random serial killing by a killer that has to be caught. This is vivisection of a family line. Sir Henry Baskerville steps into the shoes of his recently deceased uncle to become the owner of the estate of Baskerville Hall, and therefore becomes the one to be hunted and haunted by this ancient curse. It is an intense story that doesn't really let up as Conan Doyle pulls out all the bells and whistles. He shifts narration styles, he throws red herrings left and right, subplots unfolding with every page, and all of it intensely difficult to see through thanks to the mist on the moors with no Sherlock inside to clear the way, the security of his quick wit and wisdom nowhere to be found. And that is a large part because this isn't a straightforward mystery. Not that they ever are, of course, but this mystery has certain quality to its layers. Is this a simple murder mystery? Is this a crime thriller? Is this a supernatural suspense story? We don't really know. Our minds and perhaps even our hearts lie with the firm ideas of Sherlock, that a hound and a supernatural hound at that is illogical, unfathomable and unbelievable. And yet, there are footprints. People have died by them. You can hear it howling across the moors. We don't want to believe it, and yet we kind of do want to believe it. This is wonderfully helped by the vivid descriptions that Conan Doyle employs when talking about the moors themselves, building it through the story as this almost primordial figure that looms heavy throughout the story. This is a quote that reads, The longer one stays here, the more does the spirit of the moor sink into one's soul its vastness, and also its grim charm. When you are once out upon its bosom, you have left all traces of modern England behind you. But on the other hand, you are conscious everywhere of the homes and of the work of the prehistoric people. And this quote can be tied directly to Conan Doyle's own experiences upon the moor, when he wrote this letter to his mother and this line stating that, We did 14 miles over the moor today, and we are now pleasantly weary. It is a great place, very sad and wild, dotted with the dwellings of prehistoric man, strange monoliths and huts and graves. In those old days, there was evidently a population of very many thousands here, and now you may walk all day and never seen one other human being. A beautiful wasteland reaching into the horizon, the perfect setting for a supernatural thriller to test one of literature's greatest detectives. Now, what do I need to say about Sherlock being absent? It's a curious choice, and one that I think was deliberate and adds a little mystery to the story. Watson, in his letters and reports, is constantly referencing Sherlock, writing as if he is talking to him, and there are a lot of scenes where he tries to think like Sherlock and employ the same deductive techniques. But the absence, the silence from Sherlock as if he was actually dead. Now, Obviously, I knew he wasn't coming from the modern position, but I can only imagine, and I like to think, that as it was serialized, the absence would have grown in conspiratorial grounds as the reader starts to grow unsure of Sherlock's placement in this world and if he was really still alive. This story is about a haunting hound, 
but is Sherlock the hound of Dr. Watson's mind roaming and howling the recesses of his memory, an untamed wild dog upon the moors and the memories of friends departed. A masterstroke, I feel, by an author who is playing with us in more ways than one, and I mean, I would have loved to have been around at the time reading it as it came out, among the flitterings of hopefully conspiracy. So let's have another brilliant quote by this brilliant writer. To his eyes, all seemed beautiful, but to me, a tinge of melancholy lay upon the countryside, which bore so clearly the mark of the waning year. Yellow leaves carpeted the lanes and fluttered down upon us as we passed. The rattle of our wheels died away as we drove through drifts of rotting vegetation, sad gifts, as it seemed to me, for nature to throw before the carriage of the returning heir of the Baskervilles. The returning heir of the Baskervilles. How long is he returning for before he is hunted down by this hound? I won't say any more to the story. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil the twists and turns that it has. So let's move on to a rating. What would I rate this? It is considered the best of the four Sherlock stories, which I haven't read all four of the novels. I haven't read all the Sherlocks. I've read a fair chunk of them, but not all of them. So I'm going to reserve my judgment as to whether I think it's the best one. But that being said, I am going to give it a 4.2 Haunting Hounds out of 5. So what am I reading this week? This week I am reading a couple of big books which I'm not going to reveal just yet. The Three Musketeers is one of them, so I just revealed that, but you already knew that from a previous episode. Um, so instead I thought I'd just do a little book reveal because that's apparently what you do on social media these days. Um, I bought these two books, they were on sale, which was really nice. Ursula K. Le Guin, The Left Hand of Darkness, I'm holding them up for the benefit of those on YouTube. Um, I've seen a lot of her work going around as a really good science fiction writer and you know I stated I did want to read more science fiction so really looking forward to sinking my teeth into that one and then this one Mikhail Bulgakov The Master and Margarita uh, another book that is always sort of floating around in the world that I am very much looking forward to sinking my teeth into sometime this year there were on sale, incredibly cheap. I think, what's this one say? $3.99 and this one I think was £2 for Left Hand of Darkness. So a very good price. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. Please head along to the website. I forgot what I was going to say there for a second. Please head along to the website, support the pod, like, subscribe, five-star reviews. But as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. Now, I think it's time to end this episode. So today to take us away, I think a bit of a summary quote to help us through the northern winter with the promise of something good coming. Some F. Scott Fitzgerald and this from The Great Gatsby. And so, with the sunshine and the great burst of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow fast in movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. <laughs>